work together, but you've graciously invited me into your homes. I'm delighted to be with you. I want to share with you a little bit from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. I love the Gospel of Mark because uh, Mark, who wrote the Gospel, is a little bit like a journalist. And he's writing to the folks in Rome, and they're under difficulty because of persecution, but he's writing to them about Jesus. And interestingly, the little word immediately appears, I think, something like 42 times, not in English, but, but in the Greek, about 42 times. So it's all about action. It's just what, It goes from one action scene to another action scene to another action scene. And in chapter 6, well, there are five different sections in that chapter. In the first section, uh, Jesus preaches in his hometown, and he's absolutely astonished by the lack of faith uh, amongst the people. In verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Well, not only did they take offense at him, but they actually insulted him. They said, isn't this Mary's son? Nobody referred to a, 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 a man in reference to his mother. The Eustace would have said, isn't this Joseph's son? But they said, isn't this Mary's son? So they, were, they insulted him. They'd taken offense at him. And then in verse, the last part of verse 6 to verse 13, Jesus sends out the 12 uh, to reach unbelievers. And then the next section is verse 14 to 29. And we see what happens when a man's conscience dies. And you remember the story about John the Baptist being beheaded. And we're not going to linger there, but that's a pretty sad story indeed. And then, in chap then the next section is verses 30 to 44. And we have the feeding of the 5,000. Amazing, isn't it, what Jesus could do with a little boy's picnic lunch? The little boy gave his picnic lunch to Jesus. Uh, it has been said that God must delight in using ordinary people with ordinary gifts because he's made so many of us. Don't you like that? God has chosen to delight to use ordinary people. Well, we're required to bring what we have uh, to God. And that little boy brought his picnic lunch, and I don't suppose he ever imagined that the Lord would bless it and use it in such extraordinary ways. Well, that brings us to the section that we're going to focus on this morning. It's a very familiar section, so I'm going to read it to you. Mark 6, reading from verse 45 down to the end of verse 52. And the heading in my Bible is Jesus Walks on the water. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them, pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed 
into the boat, boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Well, what a wonderful passage that is, and we're going to think about that this morning. Um, the, this miracle is recorded in just three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. And if you want to get a complete picture of what happens, you've got to kind of read the accounts beside each other, and then you can get all the detail together. And, and that's a, a really interesting way of, of doing it. Now, we remember that they'd been in a, the disciples had been in a storm with Jesus. Do you remember? They were in the boat, uh, and the storm got up, and Jesus was, was fast asleep. And they were absolutely terrified. And so they woke him up and said, Lord, don't you, don't you care that we're about to drown? And Jesus stood up and he said, peace be still. And it was still. The waves stopped. So they'd been in a storm with Jesus before. But in our reading, Jesus comes to them in another storm and he is walking on the water. Now, just Hit the pause button there for a moment. And please understand that the early Christians used to have this mental picture of the church. And, and it was a, just like the disciples in the boat in the middle of a storm. And that's the way they pictured the church. And that the symbol is so right and so beautiful that many scholars believe that Mark actually uh, understood that symbol, and he wanted his readers to see it. And the ancient church certainly saw it that way. I don't know if you know anything about church architecture, but here's a picture of the, the kind of the pattern uh, of the way they used to uh, build churches. And if you look carefully, you'll see that it's shaped a little bit like a cross, and that set section there is called the transept. And do you see the pink pit? Well, that's called the nave. And that's where the congregation sits. But what you might not know is the word nave comes from the Latin word for boat, for boat. So please keep this symbol in your mind as we consider Christ's church in the storms of life. It's a symbol that we can relate to because we're going through something of a storm just as the moment. Isn't that right? Not only collectively as a church family, but in our own personal lives, we go through uh, storms and stresses. And it, it's a symbol which gives wisdom for navigating through life's uncertain seas. So let's just focus on the text. The story took place immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000. And um, we, we, we read something very interesting. It, it says in verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And as I read that, I think that's very interesting, that word made. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. It's a very strong word. He compelled them to get into the boat. Well, why we want to ask? Surely it would have made more sense to keep the disciples around so they could take advantage of the ministry opportunities following the miracle. 
After all, having fed the 5,000, the people would surely be anxious to hear whatever, they had, whatever the disciples had to say about Jesus. But no, Jesus made them get into the boat. If you look at the John account, it says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The disciples weren't ready to face that test. In fact, they might have been swept along by the excitement of it all. And so Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. But I think there was another reason why he made them get into the boat. You see, I think the Lord wanted to teach them a lesson about faith. And it was a lesson that they couldn't learn on the, on the land, as it were. He had to put them into a circumstance where they might grab hold of a lesson. Now, we know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We also know that the outworking of faith is trust. And trust sometimes involves us standing in a place where if God doesn't turn up, we're going to be in real trouble. But that's what faith is all about. And they needed to have a strong faith because their faith would carry them through the trials that they would endure in the days that were to come. So when Jesus made them get into the boat, I wonder, did he even give them a shove to, to get the boat off the shore? He may have done just that, to, to get the boat off the shore. He made them get into the boat. And then it says in verse 46, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, Jesus was aware of the crowd's intention to forcibly proclaim him as king, so he went to the hills to spend some time alone with his father. Prayer was obviously really important to Jesus, time on his knees. I have a book in my study that's written by a, a theologian called George Adam Smith. He, he lived a long number of years ago, but George Adam Smith was interested in climbing mountains. And on one occasion, he went to Switzerland and he climbed that mountain, which is called the, the Weisshorn, which is above the Zermatt Valley in Switzerland. And it was a very stormy day, but he had a guide. So he and the guide climbed the mountain on the side that was sheltered. And uh, when they got to the top, I don't know how long it took them to, to climb the mountain, but he was really excited, was George Adam Smith, to think that he'd actually triumphed by just about reaching the summit. And he, he, he wanted to jump up and to see the view. Uh, so he forgot about the storm and he jumped up. He sprang up onto his feet to the top of the, the very pinnacle of the peak. And he was almost blown over the edge by the wind. And his guide grabbed him and pulled him down and said to him, on your knees, you're only safe here on your knees. There's a lovely lesson in that, isn't there, for us? We're only safe on our knees. Well, the Christ, though Christ was one with his Father, he lived in constant prayer. He prayed that he would be faithful in 
working out and fulfilling the mission that his father had given him. He had a growing awareness of what lay ahead, that he was going to be suffering. And so he prayed. And you know something? We can be sure that he prayed for the 12 disciples because he knew that there was a storm coming and that they were going to be right there in the middle of the storm. But there's some wonderful encouragement for us here. A number of years ago, maybe 20 or so, my wife and I were off in Brazil visiting some missionaries. And uh, we were in Rio de Janeiro, and we had the opportunity of going up to this famous statue, Christ, Christo Redemptor, Christ the Redeemer, uh, which is about a mile high. Not, not the statue, but, but the elevation. And right at the very bottom of that big hill, there is what's known as a favela. If you just look at the very bottom left-hand corner of that picture, you can see some of those uh, favela houses. They're little huts that are built in precarious places that people live in. Uh, and it's, a, it's dangerous, so tourists are not supposed to go up there. But what's really interesting, as, as, as we stood up there and we went around on the little uh, platform and looking at the, at, at the front of the face, it struck me that there was the statue of Christ with his arms open wide, but he had eyes that couldn't see. And he had a heart that couldn't feel. And I thought, Lord, I'm so grateful that you're not like that. You can see. And you do pray. And there's that wonderful verse in Second Chronicles 16. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I wonder, as his eyes are running throughout the earth this morning, as he looks at us and sees us, what is he praying for us today? Well, he was looking at the disciples, that tiny church struggling in the midst of the storm on the lake. It says in verses 47, 48, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, John's gospel tells us that the boat was about three and a half miles offshore. I don't know if you've ever been in a rowing boat in a storm. When I was young, I think I've told you before, I used to do a lot of fly fishing. And I was a member of a fly fishing club in County Wicklow in Southern Ireland. I suppose I was about 15 and there was a fishing competition. So we, we were assigned, uh, we, we didn't choose our partners. We were matched up with somebody and I was matched up with an older man. And uh, because we fished on a reservoir, they didn't use outboard motors in case the petrol spilled into the water. So it was, we had to row, just use our muscles. And um, we rode, the clubhouse was at one end of the reservoir, so we rode off up the, the other end of the reservoir, but then a storm got up. And uh, we thought this is just a little bit dangerous. We didn't have life jackets or anything like that. We didn't bother in those days. So we tried to row back this, there was only two, two oars, but we each took an oar and we tried to row. But you know, we couldn't make any headway. So what we actually did was we beached the boat and then we, we walked along the shore, dragging the boat in, in the water. Uh, 
and then we got to a place where we couldn't get any further so we abandoned the boat and walked around the shore back to the clubhouse and while we were there the, the gale was wind was blowing and uh, 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 down down the the, the lake and the waves were getting up down this reservoir and I, I looked out and there across the other side I could see a, a, a boat and in the boat there were two men and, and the guy at the oars he was known as the best oarsman in the fishing club and I watched him row for an hour and you know something he never moved forward he stayed in the same place for an hour because he was rowing as hard as he could in the midst of the storm for an hour. And finally he gave up and the boat went like a speedboat backwards onto the shore. And finally he and um, his colleague walked back and I remember seeing his face was white, as white as could be. I thought he, he was just about to have a heart attack. But please understand that these disciples, they'd been rowing for maybe up to eight hours for six to eight hours and they made absolutely no progress now we don't know but i kind of imagine that peter took charge and i can see him with his soggy wet beard dripping bellowing orders and the others looking up at him from their oars and they weren't in danger but they didn't know it they thought their lives were in absolute dreadful danger and they must have been miserable in that open boat their feet wet with the icy bilge water straining at the oars for six or maybe seven hours and ironically the disciples were in this miserable trouble because they'd been obedient to jesus imagine what might have happened had they been disobedient if they hadn't got into the boat maybe they could have gone to a nearby village and been offered hospitality and maybe had a nice hot meal and a warm bed in somebody's house with an evening in front of them to regale their hosts with stories about Jesus. But interestingly, it was their obedience that made them so uncomfortable. And if you think about it, do you remember Corrie Ten Boom, that lovely lady who went into the concentration camp? She was obedient to God and was trying to help the Jews who were being persecuted. And her obedience to God brought her into a concentration camp. And the truth is this, if we submit our lives to Christ in obedient commitment, almost certainly we will expose ourselves to a variety of sorrows. Our caring, our commitment to biblical, live, biblical living will make us vulnerable to things which the uncommitted heart will never experience. Now, this passage uh, completely contradicts the name it and claim it heresy. I remember a number of years ago when I was preaching down in, in Suffolk in a uh, pastoring a little church down there. One day, uh, my wife didn't come with me because one of our sons was not well. And this lady said, why isn't Anne here? And I said, well, um, I think it was David isn't very well. He's at home sick. And this lady said to me, oh, well, just claim it. Doesn't God doesn't want anybody to just claim healing. And I looked at her and I said, have you ever read Hebrews chapter 11? Because that's a passage that's all about God's people suffering. And the last verse of John 16, 
verse 31, I think it is, or 33, Jesus said to the disciples, the very last thing before he started to pray for them, in, in that's in the upper room discourse, he said, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So that name, and, name it and claim it is an absolute heresy. God uses suffering even in the life of Jesus. Hebrews tells us he learned obedience through suffering. Yes, obedience may well bring us into storms, but it will also bring us a joy that we can never know anywhere else. And if we don't obey Christ, we may well miss some of the storms, but we shall never know what it is to have the wind of the Holy Spirit in our sails, as it were, driving us along in service and power. What a privilege it is to be used by God and if you and I were watching this, we might have wondered, why did the Lord give? Training at the oars because the wind was against them. Did Jesus see with his human eyes? Three and a half miles they were from him. We, we don't know if he saw with a naked eye. But what we do know is this, that his focus was on those who were struggling because they had been obedient. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. There is great comfort and encouragement here for us because he saw and he went. He saw and he went. Now remember, it was about three o'clock in the morning. And if you're having a struggle, he sees. And in his own time, at a time of his choosing, he comes to us. How wonderful is that? And there's something else here that's amazing. There's a little phrase that doesn't appear in any of the other accounts. It says he was about to pass by them. Well, why? Had Jesus wanted to go to them, he would have gone straight directly to them. If he'd wanted to avoid them, he would have passed them by. But he was about to pass them by. What's that all about? Well, it seems to me that the Lord Jesus wanted them to give an expression of their need of him. However inadequately, he wanted them to call out to him. And that's exactly what they did. They thought he was a ghost. Now there's a little verse in Job that's very interesting. It says in Job chapter 9, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion. The, I always struggle with pronounce this verse, Pleiades, however you can pronounce it however you want. And the constellations of the south, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him when he goes by. I cannot perceive him. How extraordinary. Jesus came in the darkest part of the night when, he had, when they had exhausted their energies and when they were in deepest despair. And that's how he often comes to us, that we might learn the futility of our own strength and depend on him. And the very waves that distressed them became a pathway for his feet. So transcending was his power. His feet 
upon the waves, bespoke his familiarity with their plight. You see, he not only sees us, but he enters into our struggles. So there you have the Lord. Well, what about the disciples? It says, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. No surprise. Literally, it says they screamed. They screamed. And I have to, to say, I wondered, did they nearly jump out of the boat? That wouldn't have been a good thing to do at all. But I think they were absolutely terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Isn't it wonderful when they screamed out in fear, he didn't hang around for 10 minutes while they screamed and screamed and screamed. It just says immediately. He responded to them, he spoke to them and he said, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. I, I, I wonder, is that something that he might say to us today? if we're a little afraid. Uh, why didn't they recognize him? Well, I don't think they recognized him because they didn't expect him. Though they'd walked with him and seen him feed 5,000, they didn't yet grasp who he was. Verse 52 says they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. And when their when they res, the response when they responded in faith, well, Mark doesn't uh, uh, record that, uh, but it's very interesting. They they said, "Lord, if it's you," Peter said, "Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you." And so Jesus said, "Come to me." And you can just imagine Peter hanging onto the boat, putting out one foot, and kind of testing the water to make sure he wasn't going to sink. And lo and behold, both. The, the, it was solid under him. So then the other foot went out, but I think he probably still had a real good grip on the boat, and he probably banged his feet on the surface of the water. And then finally, he took his hands away, looking at Jesus, and with absolute amazement, he began to walk towards Jesus, uh, up, up, the, up the waves and down the other side. And, uh, and then uh, he became conscious that the, the waves were really quite tall and the wind was quite strong as it was ripping his robes. And, uh, and he began to get so scared that he took his eyes off Jesus and focused on the waves and the wind. Now just note for a moment that the same wind ripped the robes of Jesus. And he walked over those very same waves. And as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink. So he, he prayed a really eloquent prayer. Help, Lord. One of those arrow prayers. Help, Lord. And the text says beautifully that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and lifted him up and got him back into the boat. How wonderful that was. Now, sometimes I think you and I were maybe just a little bit hard on Peter. He's well known for opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. That's what he did. He seems to be really impetuous. But at least he got out of the boat. <laughs> the others didn't. They stayed in the boat. Well, that's a wonderful account of that passage. But what about us? And what does this passage mean for us? What can we learn from? Well, 
I don't mind telling you that I know when I'm seeking to walk with Jesus and a storm comes, I'm tempted to take my eyes off Jesus to just see how, how big the waves are and to feel how strong the storm is. And when that happens, I tend to forget that he sees, he prays, he controls the storm, and he comes. And I wonder, could it be this morning that you're heartily sick and tired of this lockdown, as most of us are, and you're frightened about this virus, and frightened about job, frightened about what you're going to do for money and mortgage, and all of that stuff that just about everybody's struggling with at the moment. It's possible if we take our eyes off the Lord and think about all of these things that we'll begin to sink. When the Lord got into the boat with them, it says beautifully, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. They gave him his proper title, the Son of God, and they worshipped him. You see, they had learned some faith lessons that they needed to learn. And perhaps there are faith lessons that you and I need to learn. And God in his mercy organizes special circumstances just for us. Maybe special circumstances for a church family to learn faith lessons. So what's our response to this? Will we commit ourselves to following him through the inevitable storms, even when they don't seem to make sense to us? Those who keep their lives pointed in the right direction that Christ dictates will always encounter storms, but they will also experience the wind of the Holy Spirit in their sails, driving them on. I wonder, have you ever been down to Helensburgh and looked at the yachts sailing offshore, particularly if there's some wind? And it's amazing, isn't it? The wind just goes in the one direction, but the yachts seem to go in all sorts of directions, harnessing the wind. Well, one poet put it like this. One ship sails east and another west by the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of time as we journey along through life. Tis the set of the soul that determines the goal and not the calm or the strife. What a wonderful passage of scripture. How kind. God was to teach those disciples a, a lesson about faith and how kind he is to teach us lessons of, about faith. Not always comfortable, but oh my, as we walk with Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and he just fills us and he moves us forward and he gives us the privilege of being involved in kingdom building. I just love the thought that someday when we stand in glory together, maybe the Lord will show us how he has used us 
And maybe we'll meet folks in glory who will be able to say, you, you gave me that tract, or I was in the queue and you told me that God loved me, or I was hungry and you gave me some food and you told me that I mattered to Jesus. And in those moments, won't it be joy to, to just know that we've had the privilege, we've maybe been like that little boy, we don't have a whole lot, but we bring our picnic lunch to Jesus and he takes it and he blesses it, he uses it and he multiplies it and makes it a phenomenal blessing to lots of people. And my prayer is that that's what he will do with our lives for his glory. Let me just pray for you just now. Father, we're so very grateful for the mercy that you have shown to us. And we thank you that we run the race that's marked out for us. Um, sometimes it's very pleasant and it goes down a gentle slope. Other times it's uphill. Sometimes it goes through dark and difficult places. But we thank you that we're able to place our hand in yours and we walk with you. And we know, O oh Lord, that there is a destination to which we are journeying. And that's our, our home in glory that Jesus has prepared for us. And so, Father, in your own very gentle and lovely way, I just want to pray that you draw alongside all the folks who are watching this this morning and encourage them to keep going. That the wind of the Spirit might fill their sails and just drive them on with Jesus. Please, Lord, and give us the privilege of using us for your glory. So please pour out a blessing upon each of the church family at New Beginnings and fill their hearts with your peace and double portion of your joy. We ask it, Father, in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.